This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Welcome to the MDT. This is the first episode of the ninth series of the MDT podcast. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. So that's tea like a cup of tea. I've not said that for a while. Uh, so I'm Ian Wilkinson. I'm a geriatrician down in Surrey in the UK. I am Jo Preston. I'm a geriatrician in South London. And I'm Alice O'Connor and I'm a teaching fellow at East Surrey Hospital. And today we're going to be talking about pragmatic investigation and management. We're going to be thinking about the fact that getting a diagnosis at all costs is, does not necessarily lead to an improved healthcare outcome. We're going to recognise when investigations may not lead to improved outcomes for our patients and hopefully to give you some confidence to have a chat openly with patients about their goals to guide their treatments and their interventions. But first. But first, but, but first, but first. Social media. Uh, I have something something from social media from um, just after Christmas, the Betwixtmas period. You've heard of that? Ian's looking at me like he's... No, no, no. I like that. Betwixt. It's like betwixt and between. I I like... Yeah. Yeah. From Kenneth Rockwood, and he did a tweetorial... Oh, is this a tweetorial? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. So he did a tweetorial on the Clinical Frailty School and common questions that come up around interpreting it. Um, I sent it to all of our junior doctors. Yeah. I think it's like seven or nine tweets, but really gets into it. It's quite detailed and really useful. So we'll put a link to that on our in the show notes and mm. on our website. Key learning for that for me was the clinical frailty scale is based on how the patient was two weeks before you see them. Um, but very good. Uh, so good for critical thinking around the clinical frailty score, which often has a lot of questions attached to it around when do you score it from, what happens in this scenario, what happens if things change. So it was, I thought it was really valuable and really useful. So this is the first episode of the ninth series, and so we're thinking about pragmatic investigation. And I guess to start that, we need to have a think about pragmatism and what that is. So pragmatism is defined as dealing with things sensibly and realistically in a way that is based on practical rather than theoretical considerations. That makes sense to me. And I think it's kind of the hallmark of geriatric medicine. Interacting problems, interacting treatments and complicated by their physiology that's getting older. And that leads to a high degree of complexity. And these competing and confounding factors require a degree of pragmatism and an understanding of the evidence base where it exists and an ability to tolerate the uncertainty to manage care and uh, advocate, I think, for the most vulnerable and frail older adults that we look after. So first of all, we're going to have a little think about um, overdiagnosis or overinvestigation, um, which is something that's been um, gaining interest from people around the medical community for a little while and the BMJ took a bit of an interest in this and developed this Too Much Medicine series. Yeah so it's an initiative um, which you may have seen in the paper journals or online um, and it aims to highlight the threat to human health that can be posed by overdiagnosis and the potential waste of resources on unnecessary care resulting from that. And we might call that threat iatrogenesis. You know, when we were iatrogenic illnesses, illness caused by us doing something to patients. And one of these articles published in this series was in 2013. It was on increased pickup rates of thyroid cancer. 
And um, there's a very nice graph which we've included in the show notes which shows the increasing rates of thyroid cancer diagnosis over the years as newer investigations become available. So starting back in the early 80s with the introduction of thyroid ultrasound and then moving on to the introduction of fine needle aspiration and aspiration of thyroid nodules using ultrasound. And you see the rates of thyroid cancer going up and up and up, but actually the mortality isn't changing at all. It's just a flat line along the bottom of the graph. It tells us that increasing incidence doesn't necessarily relate to mortality, but it doesn't give us the whole story about morbidity and the morbidity of having further investigations versus the morbidity of living with the thyroid cancer. These stories can sometimes make it into the mainstream news as well um, in a scaremongering sort of way. You know, you can imagine that being published with a headline of soaring rates of thyroid cancer Mm. when actually we're just getting better at picking it up. And that can sometimes lead to further health anxiety around having a cancer which may not actually impact your your life uh, or your mortality. Um, Even if you don't have a thyroid cancer, the investigation for that causes a significant amount of psychological concern for people and it can further drive more over-investigation as well. So in the same series, they talked about a political drive to screen for pre-dementia, which is not evidence-based and ignores the potential harms of of having a potential diagnosis earlier. So that was around 2012 when the government called for dementia screening and announced this aim of having a memory clinic in every town in order to increase early pickup rates of dementia or pre-dementia. But there's limited evidence that memory clinics are more beneficial than routine care by a GP. And also worth noting that actually when they were introduced in the 1980s, their main aim was to recruit patients to enter clinical trials of cholinesterase inhibitors. I think with diagnosis, there's a balance, isn't there, between looking at what is best for the whole population. And obviously, if you've got, say you've got a potential treatment for a a pre-dementia state, someone that's a high risk, and there's something we might be able to do in order to prevent them leading on and getting dementia, then you're going to want to recruit people into those trials. And so you need to have a whole system set up to make a diagnosis of pre-dementia, whatever that might be, and so that you can prove whether or not your treatment works, because down the line, that's going to be good for the overall healthcare population. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think that's disputed. Mm-hmm. But then you've got the effect on the individual mm-hmm. patients. And I think one of the things that we, that we often kind of talk about in the podcast is that balance between individualism and what it means to that patient there in front of you versus what it is about the evidence if you like for population-based things and those those things are often different and and what we're really talking about in this episode is is when you flip from one to the other and at what point does the those burdens of tests investigations diagnoses and management flip and what is therefore the most appropriate investigation or test or treatment or management in those different situations. Going back to um, this drive for earlier diagnosis, there there was a question about whether it actually met the criteria for the World Health Organization screening criteria. It's a diagnosis that doesn't have a strong evidence base for any preventative or curative pharmacological intervention, and so therefore should we be screening for it? It's difficult, isn't it? So from a purely pharmacological point of view, no, we don't have treatments, but... There is a lot that goes along with having a diagnosis and sometimes therefore it makes it the right thing to do. 
I think that's where geriatric medicine sits, isn't it? Is is on that cusp between those two things. And I think medicine as a whole has started to broaden from that definition to to kind of think about supportive care. So an earlier diagnosis of dementia allows supportive measures to be put in place earlier. We've talked in previous episodes about the benefits of psychological interventions in early dementia, um, access to targeted support from mental health teams. So there's a similarity there with heart failure diagnosis, um, having a diagnosis on echo, even if you already know that they have that a diagnosis of heart failure clinically, means they have access to the whole heart failure team mm. and all of the resources that come with that. So there is a benefit from, from gaining access from that diagnosis, from that perspective. And with dementia, it allows people to, you know, or prompt people to, to f- uh, start things like the butterfly scheme and think about this is me and reach out to me. And actually that then leads on to a better quality of care delivery, I think. Yeah. It can allow um, for families as well to plan and um, put things like power of attorney in place and think about advanced care plans. Mm. So it's not necessarily about going back to that definition, the the curative pharmacological intent or preventing the illness. It's about saying, OK, well, this is the situation we're in, being quite pragmatic. What can we do to help with yeah. that? And, and having a name for that can be really helpful, which is something we'll explore a little bit later with some examples. In our episodes on multimorbidity and also on polypharmacy, we saw that being treated strictly by guidelines for single-organ disease when you have multiple conditions can lead to harm. There's emerging evidence that strict adherence to single-organ guidance for those with frailty can actually lead to harm. So a good example of this is in diabetic blood sugar control. Um, We know that low blood sugars are more dangerous, therefore in frailer patients we often have looser HbA1c targets, um, as in we allow it to be a little higher than perhaps we would in a younger person who was not frail, who had diabetes. Um, And likewise blood pressure targets, so um, we now know there's no increased mortality with a higher blood pressure in those with frailty. So we'll often let it run a little higher than we would again in somebody who was younger and the long-term effects would be more pronounced. Yeah. And when I was reading through our, our thoughts about this, it made me think about uh, a book I read years ago. Um, have you both read The House of God? No, it's really I've read half of it. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, um, so there's a couple of bits within that, but, but one of the things within that is that, I guess he says, he says that the main source of illness in this world is the doctor's own illness, his compulsion, his or her compulsion to try to cure and his fraudulent belief that he can. Um, and then he's talking about some of the patients that he looks after and he says to do nothing was to do something and the more conscientiously I did nothing the better they got and I think there is something about um, sometimes not doing something is the right thing and sometimes you know not treating the hypertension is is very definitely the right thing there's that old quote isn't there I'm not sure who it's from um, that says the the role of the physician is to distract the patient while they cure themselves I've not heard of that before yeah I quite like that yeah yeah. You could well, argue that all the over-investigation is distraction. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I, I guess that's the, the, the key point there, isn't it? Is that, is that just because we can, we don't have to. So next we're going to talk about some common situations requiring pragmatism. And they are common scenarios that we might see in clinic um, in particular, um, but also as inpatients and how we might approach them with a more pragmatic approach. So a common scenario that we see in clinic is someone being referred with perhaps a weight loss and or some iron deficiency anemia and looking at uh, how we approach their care. So this is a common thing I see. Super common super common thing that I see referred into clinic all the time. I think it's a really good example of 
the wider medical community recognising that it's not just about investigating those things. So there are established pathways that exist for the investigation of both weight loss and iron deficiency anaemia. Um, that's usually through a two-week wait referral pathway. But that can quite often lead to fragmented care through multiple specialists um, or from the specialist in question just answering that one question and not looking at the whole person and what might be going on. So you know, saying, OK, there isn't a bleed and discharging back and still not really understanding mm. why that person still has the iron deficiency anemia, for example. An example is that two-week wait cancer of unknown primary clinics have a pickup rate of I think it's around 10% of cancers which is actually considered quite a good pickup rate but then you've got 90% of people who have something else going on and I think in those clinics uh, it's quite a significant number will have a significant pathology found I think it's about 40% mm. but I couldn't quite find that before mm. I, on my way here but so it's so quite significant. And then what happens to those people? Because actually these clinics are quite often run by an oncologist who will not necessarily have the expertise in that area to deal with that problem. So um, that's one area that I think that we can be quite helpful in. Yeah, but 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 I think that there's there's a balance to that, isn't there? And the counter-argument is that sometimes... And, and, and we're not going to give you any answers in this podcast today. You know, we're going to present both sides, really. But the counter to that is, you know, well, if you do have a potential GI malignancy, then it's the endoscopy test is the test that you need, isn't it? Yeah. And and it's how we filter correctly one patient to, say, go to see the geriatrician to talk about things in a, you know, multimorbidity, pragmatic kind of way versus the people that need the mm. the two-week wait endoscopy. And, and, and it can be really hard to pull that apart. Yeah. And with so many targets um, and not wanting to miss significant diagnoses, you can see why so many people yeah. um, go down these routes. And I think they're a really positive thing. I'm not trying to go against them at all. It's just seeing their place and the role of, of that bigger picture for people. And I guess when people are referred to the geriatricians with, say, an iron deficient anemia, a part of the underlying bit there is is a question about sort of we're asking your opinion on whether or not this person is fit or suitable for investigations, mm-hmm. in which case what sort of investigations would they be suitable for? And I guess that then comes down to like your mentally your pretest probability mm. and what's the risk of the test and how hard is it to tolerate versus the pickup rate and you've got a you know, mm. someone that might not tolerate it but you've got a test that's got a slightly lower pickup rate, but they would tolerate that, mm. then is that okay? Yeah. You know? I think also GPs will refer on through these two-week wait pathways people that they know are fit for it. Yeah. So as you say, the pretest probability in terms of who's selected to come to clinic, it's people that are already got a bit of a question mark around them. Yeah. Other questions are, are they fit or suitable for the treatments of a potential diagnosis that might be made? Um, and that more holistic look at are there other conditions or factors that might be causing the symptoms. So, for example, someone might be losing weight and have nutritional deficiencies because they've got um, poor oral intake because of dementia, or because their care needs are insufficient and they're not able to they're not able to prepare their own meals or go shopping and that kind of thing. Um, so, so looking at that whole person that we that is what we do. I guess similar examples, you know, would would come to other people that interact with older people that aren't geriatricians. So, you know, I can think of similar examples that, that where people might present to, you know, the, let's say, the outpatient physiotherapy service and, and you know, or uh, the reablement team, you know, and, and who is suitable for which. Mm. Similar, similar sort of uh, way of thinking, I think. 
It's also worth remembering that older adults um, may have higher levels of abnormal results uh, that do not signify disease, rather just the ageing process. For example, a study in Age and Ageing in 2012 showed that older subjects with unexplained anemia had similar survival compared with non-anemic subjects, but increased mortality risks were observed in subjects with an explained anemia compared with non-anemic people. So there's a benefit to understanding why they might have been anemic, but mm. the anemia itself didn't necessarily impact. Again, that just looked at mortality. Yeah. That doesn't focus on the morbidity side of things of what it's like to live your life with anemia. So in 37% of anemic subjects, no clinical explanation could be found, um, similar to earlier reports. And data from a non-institutionalised US population um, showed that unexplained anemia was present in one third of the older adults, people over 65 years, who had anemia. And no differences in the cause of death were found. So I think that's a really important one because we see anemia all the time and it's something that we, we get quite concerned with how far we should investigate. So I think it's really useful to have something like that that says actually in terms of how long someone's going to live and, and generally with anemia you're worried about um, bleeding or a tumour or something mm-hmm. like that. Actually to be able to say that actually a third of people just have this and it's okay and it's not going to be the thing that contributes to their death is is quite an uh, an important and useful thing to have to hand to say, okay, well then we don't need to go any further in looking at this or we've we've gone this far, we haven't found what it is, we don't need to really, really push. I think that can be quite difficult as well, particularly for junior doctors because the whole way through your medical training you're told, you know, nobody's just anemic, everybody's got a reason, you've got to find out the reason, otherwise you're not doing your job properly yeah um and i guess so. this shows that two-thirds of them did have a course so mm. it is important to to know how to do that but i think that quite often with geriatric medicine that is the thing is you learn how to do the do and then you learn how to know when not to do that mm. or yeah. when to stop that yeah yeah and i think that's a big bit of of geriatric medicine isn't it the mm. The, um, and 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 the, certainly the, the some of the research I've I've done previously looking at registrars shows that that is something that people find difficult is learning that that when they should do things versus when they shouldn't do things and and what should and shouldn't is is is, is a hard thing you know there is necessarily no no right or wrong but it's it's about how learning that. It's okay sometimes not to find a diagnosis or not to do a test or not to treat something. And I think the next bit to think about really is how we frame these discussions and these decisions with our patients Mm. and sort of in broad terms, how would you have that conversation with your patient? Mm. So what what do you say to people? Uh, I guess I kind of go, look, you know, there are a number of things that we could look for. So let's, let's go with the iron deficient example you know i'd sort of say look there are a number of things that we could look for some of these uh, could be quite benign and you know not too much to worry about something quite easily fixed uh, some of these could lead on to um you know in an ideal world a certain set of investigations and tests to find something that might not be that good nice and that might lead on to further invasive treatments um and sort of judge people's reaction at that point and then talk through the way in which we could do the investigations and i often kind of come up with like a little shopping list and sort of go, well, at the lowest level, we could do this. You know, we could do some more blood tests to try and identify it. And then if you wanted us to do more, we could go up to this bit. And then we could do, you know, 
um, this, and then we could go up further and we could do an endoscopy. But, you know, if you have the endoscopy and we found something, would you want us to do something about it? Mm. And if you say, actually, no, there's, there's ne never, I don't want you, I don't, I wouldn't want to have an operation or chemotherapy or something if I had a, a cancer, then I come back to go, well, would you want to know? You know, and would it help us to know? And it might do, you know, but or equally it might not, you know, and I guess it depends what, what problems someone's got. You know, if they've got anemia and they've got swallowing problems, then you might want to know if they've got an esophageal cancer because we could stent it or do something. Yeah. And then if they suddenly stop eating, we go, well, that might be why. Um, and in that situation, it might be better to know, you know. I feel like you've just done the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> you asked me. <laughs> I thought it was going to be quicker than that. <laughs> so that's broadly similar to, to what I would do. So, so I sometimes approach it with um, how serious are the diagnoses that we're, we're potentially going to find versus how important is it for that person to have a diagnosis, even if it can't be cured. And some people will say, yes, I want to know at all costs. And some people um, will say, actually, I, I'd rather... I'm happy living without knowing exactly mm. what's causing this thing. Um, so it's how comfortable they are without uh, having a clear answer. And sometimes I think that's a good enough rationale to go through something that's slightly higher risk um, for that person to have an understanding of where they're at. I sometimes also say, you know, if we're thinking about a cancer, I sometimes sort of say, well, or a tumour, maybe a growth, mm. you know, some description. I sometimes sort of go, well, you know, it's like saying that Something's a growth is like saying that it's a car. There's a great difference between your 1980 Skoda and your Ferrari, you know, and sometimes it's useful to know, are we dealing with this or are we dealing with, you know, something that's very malignant or something actually is going to sit there and it's going to be there for years and has probably been there for years and not going to cause you any harm. I think there's also a benefit of, of having a diagnosis to even just to give time for advanced care planning or early mm. referral to palliative care services, even if a cure isn't an option in there. I think that's a, a valid enough reason to have a diagnosis. And similar to you... Um, and, I think and sometimes you can get push back if you don't have a diagnosis mm. if you sort of refer someone to other services and go well I think they might have sometimes people go well I'm not really willing to take them on unless I know that they have yeah, something that's definitely answer. terminal or something you know yeah. and similarly I think it is as you said it's quite useful to go through um, the options of what would they be willing to go through to get a diagnosis how invasive are they willing to be to how invasive an investigation are they willing to have so for example if you're looking at uh, weight loss and, and iron deficiency anemia, let's say, then a CT scan would be less sensitive, but it's not very invasive. It might show you large tumours and you might opt to do interval scans to see over a longer period of time um, if something is growing. As you say, less sensitive, but not very invasive So and, and tolerated by most people. Um, the next step up might be to do endoscopies. Um, most people can tolerate an OGD, I think, if they can lie still and they can um, understand what's going on. Colonoscopy is much more invasive and obviously the preparation around that is, is can be difficult for people to do, particularly at home. Um, and they may not be able to manage that, um, but it might help with the tissue diagnosis. Running through from the other side, sometimes the way that I look at this is what treatments would be unacceptable to them if we did find something. So if they're willing to go through all of these invasive things, is saying, um, would you have surgery and lots of people will say no mm. would you have chemotherapy or radiotherapy if they say no then actually framing that question back and then saying okay well if we did find something and you don't want these treatments or these aren't options does that change what you're willing to go through in order to have this diagnosis mm. so that they're informed about what what is going to come out of these investigations 
And asking yourself as a clinician as well, um, would this person be fit for surgery, fit for chemotherapy or radiotherapy in terms of the uh, investigations that you're offering? No, I think it's true. And, and I think we've, we, we've got a duty to offer viable treatment options. Um, but also I think we have a, a duty not to raise people's expectations for treatment options that are not feasible for them. Um, and you may want to talk about other options, but sort of say, but actually, in my opinion, I don't think this out of the other is suitable for you and this is why mm. but we can talk about it and sort of have a conversation with the patient about that and just be open and honest I think but it's I think more about this is, is about being open to the idea that these conversations can happen and I think that's the thing that sometimes people find difficult is that, you know, again, like I said earlier, just because we can, we don't have to. So another way to look at these decisions is is how will having additional information alter the management that you provide with this person here and now and in the longer term as well? So using prognosis to guide your management as well. So we've got some examples. Alice, I want you to imagine you're on call. So there's an 85-year-old lady with a chest infection and she's on the third day of intravenous antibiotics. It's two in the morning. Um, she's had a chest x-ray which shows a left basal pneumonia and she gets another fever. Her sats drop and she's got some mucus plugging. She keeps sort of recovering a bit and then getting a bit worse again and her inflammatory markers are going up. What would you do? So we're assuming this chest x-ray that shows the left basal consolidation yeah. is on admission three days ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the question really, I suppose, is do you want to do another chest x-ray in the middle of the night? I mean... After three days, is her pneumonia likely to have resolved? No, no, certainly not radiologically. So you're not going to see a, ch- a clear chest X-ray that's going to give you an idea that it's something else. Could I suppose it could look worse. Um, is that going to change your management? Probably not. If they're already on intravenous antibiotics, if you feel they're getting worse and there is some other antibiotic you can add in... You know, you can always do that, but I don't know that further imaging at that point yeah. would change it. Unless, of course, your examination suggested that actually something else might be going on, which a CT might show you that an X-ray hadn't. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, even if she was developing an empyema, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, it's unlikely to change your management there and then. You know, she's going to need antibiotics. And I think what's interesting is, so I asked this exact question, in my, um, and you guys didn't know this when you wrote this, but I, I wrote this exact question in my in my dissertation, and I asked different groups of junior doctors as to how they would manage a patient like this. Um, apart from in my dissertation, I made them a bit more unwell, and they'd had a few different types of treatment. So Ian's research was educational research into yes. decision making. Decision, well, yeah, loosely, and and um, depth of knowledge. And what's really interesting is when you ask the most junior doctors, what you get is a clearly almost A B C D. Number one, do a chest X-ray. Number two, do a blood gas. Number three, check their fluids. You know, change the antibiotics. But it's when you ask the more senior doctors, you get the exact sort of question that you were saying, uh, the the thought process that you were having there, Alice, about do I do this? It's probably not going to change what I do. Do do, you know? Do we need another blood gas? You know, she wasn't retaining before. She's unlikely to be retaining now. Does she actually? Do we need to put the pain of the blood gas actually, or can we just go with the oxygen saturations? Is another chest X-ray going to help me? Is she well enough to leave the ward to go all the way down for X-ray? You know, what's that going to feel like for her versus what benefits she's going to get being in the cold corridor in the middle of the night, you know. And, yeah, I think that's something we gain with experience and is, is from a learning point of view, is much more evidence of deep knowledge, deep-seated understanding knowledge versus superficial, much more competent ABCD type knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I've got another example, which is of uh, a 92-year-old who is asymptomatic but has liver function tests that are abnormal and had an ultrasound that shows a dilated biliary tree, so where the, the gallbladder sits and going back into the liver. Um, and they've done an endoscopic approach to looking at this, which is, is how you normally look and see if there are any stones there because you couldn't take them out at the same time. It's called an ERCP. I've attempted that twice. And it's failed twice because of a combination of procedural difficulty. It's actually difficult to get into that biliary tree, but also because of compliance, because the person's got some cognitive impairment and when they were down in the department, they couldn't quite remember what was going on. And so it became a little bit more challenging from a person perspective as well as a kind of structural thing. The report comes back up saying that actually the next step would be for something that's quite a bit more invasive and would be a high-risk procedure and asking you as the clinician what do you want to do next so what do you think of that one How, what would your approach to that be i guess you're, you're wanting to think about why on talk to your patient about why the uh, biliary tree is dilated mm-hmm. you're going to want to think about whether or not that's normal mm-hmm. uh, or abnormal and if it's abnormal is it due to something like a stone mm-hmm. which we remove and they will be better or something like a tumor which we find and if it's a tumour at the head of the pancreas they're unlikely to get better from and would that change what I do? So I think if it was a stone uh, then I would be advocating for it to be removed. If it was a tumour then I'd be thinking about where the person is going to go from here. I'm assuming they're in an acute hospital. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to be thinking about you know, CHC funding and fast track process and advanced care planning and and, and that sort of things. And I think for me, that would then become down to a quite important decision because I think the way I would go would be quite different. Um, So I would put those two things to the patient and, and, you know, talk through those those two things. Or is there some other way that we could work that out? What do you guys think? I think it's quite tricky, that. Yeah, I I think I agree. I think um, I just wanted to go back to you said, could it be normal? And I guess the point you were making there is that sometimes the that duct is is um, more dilated in older adults. Yeah, yeah. So it could be part of normal ageing, a bit like the anemia example that you gave earlier, mm-hmm. Alice. So yeah, I guess it, it's about balancing that risk, uh, balancing against the potential malignancy versus the um, risk of the procedure for something that is also potentially benign. Yeah, and also if the... Are we just doing this because the blood tests are abnormal? Or does the patient feel unwell with it? You know, and, and I think that's different. You know, if they're asymptomatic, then are we trying you know, to get an earlier yeah. diagnosis of something, or are we chasing a diagnosis yeah. and an overdiagnosis, which actually isn't going to impact this person? And again, if it's a stone, you know, I, I might have a word with one of the gastroenterologists, but my gut feeling would be that if we start doing interval scans and, and repeating, you know, at a later date, then it's unlikely to be getting worse. If anything, it'll get better. Versus uh, a pancreatic head tumour that that it you know the occlusion will get worse, the dilatation will get more, and yeah. and that gives you a third option of doing nothing, exactly. and rescanning at some point in the future. Yeah. So we say if we go through the odds of each of these diagnoses, if it's normal ageing, then there's nothing that you can do that's going to alter that. So there's an argument to say let's not do anything. If the stone or a benign tumour, it could be stented or the stone taken out. Um, but if there are structural problems with getting the ERCP in, then it is going to be a high-risk yeah. intervention. So then it comes back to what benefit is this person going to see for it at the moment? And if it's a malignant tumour, then kind of taking a step back, which I think is the thing that we find hard as medics sometimes, is actually to take that step back from the diagnostic interest 
point and say, well, actually, would they be fit for surgery or the chemotherapy or radiotherapy? Um, if they are, what benefit are they likely to provide? And as you say, uh, this kind of scenario, really we're intimating quite a poor doc prognosis, so actually be looking at palliative care would be your best mm. option. Um, so I think taking that next step on each of those helps to kind of bring things together as to what you might do. Now, we all like a mnemonic. And Joe's come up with a good mnemonic here. It's not for, me. Well, there is a good mnemonic here. Yeah. Um, this was from an Obsangaini consultant. Um, so it, it fits quite nicely with investigations and procedures because it was a more surgical approach. Yeah. And it's about thinking about how giving you confidence to have these conversations with people. Uh, and sometimes, as we said before, when you have a mnemonic, you have some framework in which to hang some of your ideas around and it gives you some way of leading the conversation when in a time when you may not be entirely feeling confident. I think not just for the conversation, but also internally. I think this is something I find really helpful and to discuss as a team as well. So I'm going to tell you what she said and you can decide whether it's appropriate to stay in or not, which is the mnemonic is Bran and she say, when you're in the sh you take Bran. That's okay. We think that's okay. <laughs> uh, so she, so the mnemonic is Bran. So it's what are the benefits of this investigation? What are the risks? What are the alternatives? And what happens if we do nothing? Hmm. So we run through for this gentleman what are the benefits of having this high-risk intervention? So with that last example, um, what are the benefits of doing this high-risk investigation? So I guess the benefits, if there are, is about not missing a, a diagnosis of malignancy and getting an accurate tissue diagnosis yeah. if, if, if there is possible to get. Yeah. Or the potential benefit of finding a stone and getting rid of it. Yeah. Um, what are the risks of this investigation? So uh, I think often... Any risks of anything that, that's around the gallbladder and the biliary duct are about biliary uh, tree perforation, mm -hmm. which is an absolute nightmare yeah. um, and, and a nightmare to, to, to fix. Yeah. Uh, and obviously all around there, uh, it's the bowels as well, so injury to the bowel wall. So we're looking at relatively serious complications mm. if they were to occur. Yeah. What are the alternatives to the investigation? Are there any? No, probably not. No, I think, we, did we mention monitoring blood tests uh, sort of to see if there's any change mm. in so those that, abnormalities over time so that would come into what happens if we do nothing oh, okay i think in 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 the way that i approach this and so mm. uh, in there any alternatives to the specific offering so in the example of an endoscopy for example for weight loss i might say the alternative might be ct mm. it's not as good but kind of the there is thing. an alternative so i guess the alternative would do. be to try for another ercp again yes and we've tried yep, twice already so. yeah exactly <clears throat> and then what happens if we do nothing so if we do nothing we may miss a malignancy but there might be other ways that we could do this so as you were saying so, potentially yeah, I mean, for example, continuing to monitor blood tests, you know, whilst the patient remains asymptomatic to see if they are in keeping with an obstructive or an inflammatory kind of picture and if they develop symptoms over time. Yeah. Reassessing it. That yeah. Or another ultrasound in, you know, a couple yeah. of weeks, weeks. And allow that to guide your diagnosis and your prognosis and still allow early intervention for something that might be beneficial to have palliative care involved, for example. Cool. So, Bran. Benefits, risks, alternatives, and what happens if you do nothing. Yeah. Cool. So that's everything. That's what we wanted to talk about, pragmatic investigation. If you've got any thoughts, comments, questions, um, additions, deletions, then please do let us know. Uh, we are available at MDT underscore podcast on Twitter. And Facebook.com forward slash 
MDT Podcast. Or on our website. www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk The MDT Podcast. Now it's time for the MDT teaser. This is the catchily titled MDT, what used to be the item guessing game, but is no it longer. Was, it's, yeah. it's now like a, uh, a synopsis of the episode. So one minute to talk about the episode and the content of the episode without hesitation, uh, repetition or going off topic. Uh, Alice, do you want to go first? I can try. You can play along with this at home. <laughs> it's quite hard to do. Uh, I have a timer. Joe, you have a... Hang well, on. we all have a buzzer. Okay. Right, okay. Alice, are you ready? Yep. Off we go. Today we have been talking about using pragmatism when investigating older adults. <laughs> Hesitation. Hesitation. <laughs> that was Ian interjected. Yeah. Fine. Okay. So when we're thinking about pragmatic investigation, we're talking about weighing up the pro and the con for different types of tests. Those different investigations, yes. I mean, two things there, <laughs> hesitation and repetition. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I think I said investigation and then investigations, to be fair, but there's definitely hesitation I mean, there, yeah. That was Alice again, sorry. I'm, I'm, uh, not, I'm just commenting on the rules. Alice, you've got 36 seconds. So when we're trying to find out what's wrong with a patient, we need to be thinking about whether getting an answer is going to help us to make them feel better or to help them to live longer or whether... Repetition of all? What? I think that's a bit harsh. I was going to go repetition of help, but... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Alice, continue then? Yes, 18 seconds. Okay. And I can't think of anything now. <laughs> Hesitation. <laughs> so, uh, 16 seconds and it's me. So, that pragmatic investigation is a really tricky thing because sometimes as doctors we are trained to get to the bottom of every single problem, whereas actually sometimes it's not the right thing to do. Ding. There was a repetition of sometimes there, but no one's caught it. So, yeah, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Brilliant. Cool. So that's the end of this episode. Uh, please uh, do get in touch. Um, on our website, there are show notes. There are infographics. There are all the references. There is a CPD log uh, that you can log on to and write your reflections. That will You'll get a copy. Um, and we use that to try and tailor the episodes to get them to be more like the things that you want because there's a, a review bit built into that. So please do, do use those. Um, the infographics are free to download. Please use them at your workplace uh, to advertise uh, the podcast, but also more importantly to advertise your learning. And let us know how you use them. Yeah. If you do. Yeah. The MDT will reconvene in two weeks' time. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a Hearing Aid Podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.